Welcome to Three Things with Rick Elias, featuring fascinating conversations with some of the world's most insightful people and three inspiring life lessons at the end of every episode. Today's episode is all about sleep, featuring one of the world's top experts, Dr. Matthew Walker. He's a professor of neuroscience and psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, the founder and director of the Center for Human Sleep Science and author of the book, Why We Sleep, Unlocking the Power of Sleep and Dreams. His groundbreaking research covers everything from why we sleep, what happens to us when we sleep, what happens when we dream, and how sleep impacts our concentration, our memory, our immune system, and more. His current focus is on the possible link between not getting enough sleep and likelihood of developing Alzheimer's disease. We tried to keep this short, but there was so much to learn from. We went ahead and shared the full conversation. Don't miss the end when Rick and Matt go through a lightning round of things in your life that could be affecting your sleep, like caffeine, alcohol, what you eat, when you eat, and more. This is Three Things with Dr. Matthew Walker. Today on the podcast, we have somebody that I've been looking forward so much uh, to having on the show. I wanted to wait until we were in person. So Matt Walker, welcome to Three Things. Thank you so much for having me here. It is such a privilege um, and a pleasure just to, uh, I had a quick look around Red Ventures and it is a special place. There is an energy that is undismissible here when you arrive. Um, So... I can imagine it's been a very hard thing to build, and you make it look easy. That's very kind of you. uh, (laughs) Non-trivial. So, Um, thank you. Listen, I've listened to most of your stuff because I'm a student of sleep and therefore uh, a disciple of yours in many regards. And I'm not going to start the typical question of how did you sleep last night because you slept at my house <laughs> together with a few other friends so i'm not asking that i'm going to jump uh, i'm going to give you a little bit of context about five years ago there was a a friend of mine named barry summers and we were having dinner and he said can we do it at six and is it was i'm like sure and when we sat at dinner he's like hey I'm, I'm all about sleep and he was the first person that kind of put this nugget in my mind that we had mm-hmm you know, underinvested in understanding sleep and all that. And so I started reading and I started reading all your stuff and I started looking at all that. Eventually I got my aura ring maybe three and a half, four years ago. And I am completely hooked on the value importance of sleep. So having you here for me to continue to learn and then to share with the audience uh, all that we know and don't know about sleep is is just tremendous. Well, I will anoint you a sleep ambassador now for all of your work. Thank you. So let's uh, just at a broad level, why did you get into sleep? <laughs> I think most people are accidental sleep researchers. You know, no one when you're five years old, when the teacher is going around the classroom and you say, what, what would you like to be when you grow up? No one's shooting their hands up and saying, I would love to be a sleep researcher, you know? Um, and so I was actually studying, uh, I was doing my PhD and I was trying to diagnose people with different types of dementia very early on in the course of that dementia. And I was using brainwave recordings to do that. And I was failing miserably. I couldn't get any good results, nothing. And I used to go home at weekends to my doctor's residence and I would sit in my room with this little sort of igloo of journals all around me and I'd just read and read. And um, 
Oh, by the way, I'm just now realizing that probably tells you everything about the social life that I was having. <laughs> if, if that's what my weekends were, I, no, I was I was out, you know, at the discotheque, and no, I was actually in an igloo of journals. So I was reading these different journals, and one weekend I realized some of those dementias would eat away at some of the sleep centers in the brain, and others did not. They were attacking other parts of the brain. Hmm. I thought, well. Maybe I'm recording the brainwave activity of my patients at the wrong time, which was when they were awake. I should be doing it when they're asleep. And it was then that it was in the static, the electrical static of sleep at night that revealed remarkable discoveries in terms of which dementias these people were suffering from. And at that point, I started to realize, I wonder if the disturbed and disrupted sleep that they're having is not a symptom of the dementia. I wonder if it's a cause of the dementia. Huh. And at that point, which was, gosh, almost that was 22 years ago, I'm aging myself demonstrably here, but um, which is okay, I'm solidly in the foothills of middle age and I'm fighting it. But And at this point, I, I started to wonder about sleep, what it, what it was doing. And what was striking at that point, no one could answer a simple question 20 years ago about sleep, which was this, why do we sleep? And the crass answer that we had at that time was that we sleep to cure sleepiness, <laughs> which is like saying, well, the reason that we eat is to cure hunger. <laughs> well, no, that tells you nothing about the physiological right. nutritional benefits of this thing called sustenance. But the same was true for sleep. So at that point, I realized I had to go away and I had to try and answer this question, why do we sleep? And only then could I come back to then addressing this topic of sleep and dementia, mm. because otherwise it was cart before the horse. I had to answer this question first. So I thought I would go away and within two or three years, I would answer that question. What I didn't realize is that m most of the brilliant minds in science had tried to answer that question and they'd all failed. <laughs> And honestly, with complete naivety rather than hubris, I thought I would go and solve it in a couple of years. What I learned was that difficult questions don't care who is asking them. They will meter out their lessons of difficulty all the same. <laughs> and I got schooled in the difficulty of this thing called sleep. Now, fortunately, because not of really my work, but all of my colleagues work over the past 20 years. Now, we have had to reverse and upend the question. Instead of asking, why do we sleep? We now have to ask, is there any physiological operation of your body? Or is there any cognitive process of your mind that isn't wonderfully enhanced when we get sleep or demonstrably impaired when we don't get enough? And the answer seems to be no. That's now where we're at. So, but that was how I got into sleep. I, I f fell for sleep as, and it was a love affair that was immediate. Yeah. It has lasted as a love affair for over 20 years. I think it is the most beguiling topic in all of science and I'm biased. And I, it is the most besotting thing to me. I love it. Let's do a little bit of a primer on sleep. Uh, yeah. What happens when we sleep and what happens when we don't sleep? 
You know, it, it's very interesting because if I was not a sleep researcher, I would probably have the opinion that most people do in society, which is when I sleep, my body rests and sort of gets some kind of recharge. And my mind is largely blank because I'm non-conscious and then I wake up in the morning. So, you know, no wonder I don't really get concerned if I lose an hour of sleep or two hours of sleep because it's just my body resting. Nothing could be further from the truth. Your brain goes on an incredible roller coaster ride in and out of these different stages of sleep throughout the night. And so when your head hits the pillow tonight, first it will go into the lighter stages of what we call non-rapid eye movement sleep, stages one and two. And then it will go down into the deeper stages, called stages three and four of deep non-REM sleep. And it will stay there for a while. And then it will start to rise back up and it will go up and have a short, what we call REM sleep period or rapid eye movement sleep period, which is what we think of as dream sleep. And then back down it goes again, down into deep non-REM sleep and then up into REM sleep. And it keeps cycling in that way. And that cerebral war between non-REM and REM is won and lost every 90 minutes and replayed every 90 minutes. And that creates this standard cycling architecture of a 90-minute sleep cycle. Um, now, it's 90 minutes in humans. It's different in different species. Um, we don't quite know why, but it is different. And is it 90 on average and then there's a distribution curve or? Exactly that. So it's a bell curve. So you may actually have an average cycle of, let's say, 102 minutes. Mine may be, you know, 87 minutes. There is variability, but on average, it's 90 minutes. And, and is it static in our lives or does it change as we age? It does change as a function of age. It's very interesting. The 90-minute cycle largely remains but the distribution of that sleep is different. Super but interesting. Let, so, that's, so your night goes in these 90-minute cycles of non-REM and REM, but there's even an interesting difference within that 90-minute cycle because in the first half of the night, the majority of those 90-minute cycles are comprised of lots of deep non-REM sleep and very little REM sleep, very little dream sleep. Um, whereas as you push through to the second half of the night, now that seesaw balance shifts. And instead, the majority of those 90-minute cycles are comprised much more of dream sleep and very little deep sleep. And so now what you can see is the first half of the night, that's when you get most of your deep sleep. The second half, that's when you get most of your REM sleep. And there are consequences to this. So let's think about me and a typical night of sleep. And I'm not saying this is the optimal sleep, just let's say as an example mm -hmm. let's say i go to bed normally at you know 11 p.m and i wake up at seven and that's my eight hour opportunity but this morning i want to get a jump start on the day i've got an early meeting and i want to get to the gym so i'm going to wake up two hours earlier so i wake up at five rather than seven mm -hmm. how much sleep have i lost well you could say i've lost two hours of my eight hour night of sleep so i've lost 25 percent of all of my sleep yes and no i've lost 25 percent of all of my total sleep. But because REM sleep comes in the last couple of hours, I may have lost 50, 60, 70% of all of my dream sleep. Mm. And dream sleep, REM sleep is essential, not just as we'll, we may discuss for things like mental health, creativity, memory and learning and uh, emotional recalibration. It's critical for the body. It's the time, for example, during the 24 hour period when we have the peak release of different hormones like testosterone, 
Hmm. And both men and women, they release testosterone. Um, we all need it. And so if you're shortchanging yourself on that dream sleep, there are consequences. So I, I make this complex point in terms of an answer to your question, you know, what, what is a night of sleep? What's a typical blueprint? Just to emphasize the complexity and the richness of this thing called sleep mm. and all of these different processes. And I should note that some people will say to me, well, how do I get more deep sleep or how do I get more REM sleep? And my question to them is usually, why? Mm. And then they'll say, well, isn't that the good stuff? <laughs> <laughs> and I know where they're coming from and I understand that motivation. But what we've learned over the past 20 years is that each one of those stages is essential. Your brain and your body, those stages will do different things for you at different times of the night. They all serve different functions. So you can't game the system. Right. You don't want to try to leverage too much of X because you can compromise Y. Just realize that over the over the 3.6 million years that it's taken Mother Nature to evolve this thing called hominid sleep, yeah. you know, she's figured out the blueprint pretty well for what you need. You know, if you think after, you know, reading a book or listening to a few podcasts from, you know, supposed sleep experts that tell you, oh, you should get more <laughs> of this stuff. You think, oh, well, I'm going to hack my sleep system. Yeah. Well, you're fighting against Mother Nature. Right. When you fight biology, you normally lose. And the way you know you've lost is disease and sickness. Yeah, so interesting. So staying on evolution, if REM sleep is so important and so many dimensions of REM sleep are important in our lives, why wouldn't evolution make that the early part of our sleep instead of the last part of our sleep? It is very interesting. And we don't entirely know why that distribution exists. It's one of the unanswered questions. Why does deep sleep come first? Now, one argument has been that in the course of evolution, deep sleep came first. So if you regress the evolutionary clock back all the way and you look at different species as a way, as like a time capsule to look back through evolution. So non-rapid eye movement sleep does come first in the course of evolution. As I said, you can regress the clock back by looking at different species. And the if you look at the the sort of the evolutionary tree, what we see is that reptiles, amphibians, and fish, they all seem to have non-rapid eye movement sleep, but they don't seem to have REM sleep. Hmm. It's only when when we moved from the ocean onto the land, and then we created birds and then we created mammals mm. and those two things bifurcated they each came up in separate lineages in terms of evolution both of them have REM sleep so birds have REM sleep and mammals have REM sleep there's some argument that some reptiles have a proto version of REM sleep but for the most part let's let's say that right. REM sleep came with the evolutionary ascent of land animals such as birds and mammals. By the way, the first thing that tells us is that REM sleep evolved twice in the course of evolution independently, once in birds, once in mammals. Huh. If things repeat in evolution, even though they are completely independent lineages, it usually means that it's a fundamental biological process. Mm -hmm. So, you know, green light number one for REM sleep. 
But what that tells us is that REM sleep is the new kid on the block in terms of the evolution of sleep. Non-REM came first and then REM sleep came second. So at that point, we're starting to think, well, maybe the reason in our sleep cycle that non-REM sleep comes first is just because it's so ancient, it's so evolutionary basic that if the brain is going to get anything, it prioritizes the thing that came first in evolution, which mm. is this thing called non-REM sleep. And then you, the new kid on the block, REM sleep, if you get the chance, mm. and because they sleep appropriately, then you get your REM sleep. Now, your question, though, implies that there is a danger that we may not get that sleep opportunity. So you ask, you know, why don't we get some of that REM sleep first? Because isn't it in danger of missing out? And the reason you're saying it's in danger of missing out is under the assumption that people will shortchange on their sleep. That's a fair point. Well, Mother Nature never made that assumption. And the reason is the following. Human beings seem to be the only species that deliberately deprive themselves of sleep for no apparent reason. <laughs> Every other species will sleep the amount that they need. So in other words, REM sleep is never in danger so with the exception of humans who deliberately deprive themselves of sleep. And I'll come back to REM sleep in a second because the story doesn't end from a, an evolutionary Sherlock Holmes fascination point of view. I'll, I'll, I'll put a sticky in my mind. But I do want to come back to this point about humans being a deliberate sleep-depriving species. The reason that we implode so quickly caused by a lack of sleep is because of that evolutionary reason. For example, you and I could go without water for 24 hours. Mm. We could go without exercise for 24 hours. We could go without food for 24 hours. And we could go without sleep for 24 hours. Which is the most physiologically and cognitively neurologically damaging of all of those four? Without doubt, it's a lack of sleep. If you mm. look at the brain and the body mm. dysfunction, it is dwarfing those th three other things. Mm. And the reason is because those three other things are common in our evolutionary history. We've had times where we didn't have a source of water. We had times where we didn't have food. And what's interesting, take the example of food. Mother Nature came up with a safety net, and it's called the adipose cell or the fat cell. Mm -hmm. Because we understood that throughout the course of evolution and the experience of having feast and famine, that we needed to come up with a solution for when we went into debt, into caloric debt. Mm -hmm. So Mother Nature came up with a very clever mechanism to store energy called the fat cell, and it's a, it was a brilliant solution. Right. Now it's done as a disservice in modern day, but let's <laughs> put that aside. So where is the fat cell for sleep? Why can't we bank sleep? Oh. And the answer is because Mother Nature has never had to face the challenge of a lack of sleep because no other species does it. And in other words, that's why we implode so quickly when we don't get enough sleep, because there is no safety mechanism. There that's is no, so and so, but to come back to your question regarding REM sleep, that, uh, the story I was telling were non-REM sleep comes first, it comes first in our sleep cycle, mm -hmm. and it came first in the course of evolution. Mm -hmm. That seems to be maybe the most important and the one to prioritize above and beyond REM sleep. But I've said that Mother Nature make, never makes the assumption that you won't get the chance to get your REM right. sleep. But here's the interesting thing. Back in the 1960s, they did a series of studies that will probably never be replicated because of the ethics of it, and I think rightly so. They sleep-deprived rats until they died. And they found several interesting results. 
Firstly, rats will die as quickly from total sleep deprivation as they will from total food deprivation. So it's about as mm. important as food. Mm. The second thing that they found, however, was that rats died almost as quickly from selective REM sleep deprivation as they did from total sleep deprivation. So there's a clever way, and I won't bore you with it, where you can just exclusively deprive them of REM sleep or just exclusively deprive them of deep non-REM sleep. Right. Now, when they deprived them of deep non-REM sleep, they did still die, but they died on average almost, I think they died somewhere between 11 to 20 days after total sleep deprivation, similarly about 20 days after REM sleep deprivation, and then they died after about 60 days following deep sleep deprivation. So it took them longer to die from deep sleep deprivation, and they died far sooner after REM sleep deprivation. So now that would argue, well, in fact, REM sleep from a mortality perspective yeah. seems to be the one that's most important because you die quicker when you are deprived of your dream sleep than when you're deprived of your deep sleep. So, so now we're turning the tables yeah, and saying, yeah. no, maybe it's REM sleep that's important. I, I hope that's clear. I, I fear that that's a very convoluted set of answers to your elegant questions, but does that make some sense? A hundred percent, but it begs the question for me is, maybe we can take it at the, at, the, at the cell level, at the chemical level, what happens in the non-REM sleep? Why is it important then? It is one of the most remarkable physiological states. Firstly, upstairs in your brain, mm. something happens. Hundreds of thousands of cells in your cortex all of a sudden synchronize together, and they all fire together, and then they all go silent together, and then they all fire together, and then they all go silent together. In the deep sleep portion of? Correct. Wow. And so it's, it's almost as though, it's almost like a mantra chant. And it's a very slow mantra chant though. So when you and I are awake right now, our brain cells are oscillating, going up and down, somewhere between 20 to 60 times per second. Very, very fast, what we call frequency waves. So think about the, the waves coming on the beach. They're coming very, very fast and crashing on the beach. When we go into deep sleep, now those, the brain waves start to slow down. In fact, it goes from the waking state, which could be 20 to 30 cycles per second, all the way down to maybe just one or two cycles per second. Wow. So it's very, very slow. But what's different is that the size of those deep sleep brainwaves is massive. In other words, one measure of the brainwaves is how fast they're moving. The other is how big those waves are. Right. So they could be the waves crashing on the beach frequently, but small waves, right. versus the waves are only crashing on the the beach infrequently so very few waves now but the size of those waves is massive that is deep sleep and so as i said the what creates that is hundreds of thousands of cells all fire together and then they all go silent and that's what creates what we call these big deep slow brain waves deep sleep that's why it's called deep sleep because of the depth of these big powerful slow brain waves and it's almost as though a football stadium, you know, the microphone, the single microphone dangling over the stadium, that's my electrode that I've got on top of your head at yeah. my sleep center. But I'm measuring the summed activity of hundreds of thousands of brain cells underneath, like the hundreds of thousands of voices that are in the stadium. And let's say it's, you know, it's 
I'll pick my university, UC Berkeley, and we're playing Stanford, arch rivals. And all of a sudden, when the game gets started, you know, before all of those brain, all of those individuals were having different conversations at different times, the chatter was very sort of choppy, but very fast and frenetic. Right. That's waking brain activity. Yeah. But deep sleep is where all of a sudden the crowd all sings together, Stanford sucks, you know, right, Stanford right. sucks, <laughs> Stanford sucks. That's what happens essentially. And the, the mass coordination, the ballet, the physiological ballet required to make that happen is stunning when you look at the cellular mechanisms. So that's what's happening upstairs in the brain. One of the things that that, that creates is almost long wave radio. So think about when you're going on a drive out to nowhere. Right. You know, the F- FM radio, which is sort of more short sort of frequency ranges, um, they die out because the distance of the that those waves can travel is really quite short. It's right. like a powerful sprinter. They can sprint very quickly, but they kind of run out of puff after a while. But if you have these deep, slower brain waves, that's like long wave radio, and that can travel further distances. That's why when you go over to AM radio, you can still pick up a station, even if you're in the middle of the desert, Mm. because the carrier frequency allows it to travel much further. That is deep sleep for you as an analogy. Why am I telling you that? What does that mean? One of the reasons that that's critical is because it allows for long transfer of information across vast distances within the brain. And what we've discovered is that during deep sleep, Mm. there is a file transfer mechanism that takes place where your brain shifts information from your short-term memory reservoirs out to the longer-term memory stores up in the cortex. Mm. It's like shifting memories off the USB stick onto a hard drive. Mm. But there is distance that has to be traveled and one of the carrier frequencies that sort of moves these packages of information are these deep, slow brain waves. Mm. So that's one thing that happens upstairs in the brain. Yeah. Downstairs in the body, though, also remarkable changes. You shift over from your what's called your dominant fight or flight branch of the nervous system, what we call the sympathetic nervous system. It's very poorly named. It's anything but sympathetic. It's very agitating. <laughs> it's very aggravating. You know, it's fight or flight, you know, right. type of stuff. And in this day and age, for most of us, you know, that's probably the majority of the state that we're in when we're awake. Yeah. But when we go into deep sleep, we shift over into that quiescent, passive branch of the nervous system called the parasympathetic nervous system. So when we go into deep sleep, upstairs in the brain, it's erupting with these brain waves, all sorts of cognitive, wonderful things happening. But downstairs in the body, we shift over and our heart rate starts to decelerate. Our blood pressure drops. Deep sleep is perhaps one of the very best forms of blood pressure medication that you could ever wish for. Wow. But then also because you're in that non-fight-or-flight state, it releases the break on what's called the vagal system, the vagus nerve. Yeah. And the vagus nerve in this sort of quiet, restful state allows the activation of the immune system, for example. So two things happen (laughs) as a good demonstration of the benefits in your immune system. The first thing is that your body can start to restock the weaponry in your immune arsenal. Mm. So you wake up as a more resilient organism as a consequence. But the second thing that we've discovered is that not only do you increase the weaponry of your immune system, your body increases its sensitivity to those immune factors. Hmm. 
So you wake up as a more robust immune individual every single day. That's one of the other benefits of shifting over into this passive non-fight or flight state of the nervous system. It's also where we start to release critical hormones mm. within the body. We regulate appetite hormones. Um, and then the cardiovascular system gets this overhaul. Temperature drops down, and we have this wonderful sort of thermoregulatory drop. Why does temperature drop down? Because I, I, I do recall, it's a couple of degrees too. It's not insignificant. It's, right? Yeah, it's a couple of degrees Fahrenheit. In fact, what we need to drop our brain and body temperature to fall asleep and then stay asleep. And this is the reason that you will always find it easier to fall asleep in a room that's too cold than too hot. Because the room that's too cold is at least taking you in the right thermal direction for good sleep at night. And when you are too hot, it's almost impossible to sleep. By the way, talking about the nervous system, it's the same thing. If you are switched on in terms of your fight or flight branch of the nervous system and you're too stressed, you can be as tired as tired can be, but you are not going to sleep. And this is what we see at the sleep center. It's the phenomenon that we call tired but wired insomnia, where people come to me and they say, look, I am so desperately tired. I am so tired, but I'm so wired mm. that I can't fall asleep. Mm. And the tiredness, the sleepiness is there, but the state of the nervous system is not permissive to give in to this thing called sleep. And we need to then address that fight or flight branch of the nervous system. And we need to remove the break on the, the sleep system because otherwise that accelerator pedal, even though you can hit it hard to enforce sleep, when there's too much break from this fight or flight branch of the nervous system, you're not going anywhere. So, but temperature is a very interesting one. We don't actually know if the temperature change is a consequence of the sleep or is a cause of the sleep. Mm. All we know is that it needs to happen in order for sleep to occur, which probably tells you it is the accelerant of sleep, but it's one of the other interesting features. So I make all of these points just to try to emphasize, and we haven't even spoken about you know, what happens during REM sleep, which is a whole wonderful additional constellation of uh, nighttime uh, treasures. But I hope that gives the listener some sense of the complexity of all of the different functions that sleep is serving, and no wonder the data is as powerful as it is with a simple truth. The shorter your sleep, the shorter your life. Hmm. Short sleep predicts all-cause mortality. Hmm. And when you start to understand the complexity of sleep and all of the different things as I've just described, you can understand why my risk of cardiovascular disease, my risk of stroke, my hmm. risk of diabetes, my risk of cancer, you know, all of these things go up no wonder when you start to realize the wonderful panoply of gifts that are provided when you go into this thing called sleep at night. I, I do want to just a quick question on something that out of curiosity, you, you mentioned in that in the, in the deep sleep part of the brain, we move basically files from short-term memory to long-term memory. Um, why is that important? Is it important because we need to kind of free up our short-term memory or we need to store long-term memory because I think that has implications right it's both of those things so what you want to do is you want to retain the information of the prior day so you can update your long-term catalog of stored information mm. but you also want to clear out the short-term reservoir of your memory so that the next day you wake up 
and you can start, you know, it's like a USB stick. Right. You know, one, when it's full, the next day you can't acquire new files because it hasn't transferred them over to the hard drive. Right. Well, that's sleep. And sleep has this dual function. That sleep the night before, both it prepares your brain the next day to acquire new information by clearing out the short-term reservoir, but it also has the second benefit of storing the information that we learned yesterday because you're now moving it to the long-term hard drive within the brain, the long-term storage site, so that you don't forget. Mm. So sleep is both future-proofing that information within your brain by shifting it to the long-term memory stores, but it's also freeing up resources for the next day so that you can start learning all right. over again. Right. And we've done those studies, we've deprived people, and you can see there's almost a 40% deficit in your ability to learn new memories when you haven't had a night of sleep. And 40%, you know, to put it in context, it's frightening considering what we know is happening to sleep in our education populations. 40% mm -hmm. is the difference between acing an exam and failing it miserably. So it's, it's a non-trivial amount. Fascinating. Um, let's, my, I, I, I wanted to close with this, but I want to, I want to bring it to the front now um, because I think it's relevant to what we're talking about. It is clear that we don't know that much about the brain. Yeah. You know, and that we're now because of imaging and, you know, more sophisticated computers are able to start understanding our brains better. Does that mean that we still don't understand sleep that well or sleep is a separate part of the brain? We're still always discovering something about sleep. Great example here is, you know, four years ago, we, we did not realize that the brain had a cleansing system. Now, we knew that the body for, for many decades had a cleansing system. It's called the lymphatic system, which many people are aware of. Right. But we didn't think the brain had one. But then a team at Rochester University led by a scientist called Macon Nedegaard made three stunning discoveries. The first thing that she found was that the brain does have a cleansing system. It's called the glymphatic system. And it's named after the glial cells that make it up. These are special brain cells that we used to think of that just kind of were supporting structures like glue to right. the neurons in the brain. In fact, the glial cells, the name, if you look at the Latin derivative, is glue, glial. <laughs> and because we named them because we just thought that they were sticking the, the brain cells together. That's all. No, they form an intricate sewage system in the brain. That was the first thing that so firstly wow. stunning discovery number one about the brain then she made two more discoveries and it explains why a lack of sleep is related to alzheimer's disease and dementia the second discovery that she made was that that cleansing system is not always switched on in high flow volume throughout the 24-hour period mm. it only kicks into high gear when we go into sleep and specifically when we go into deep sleep that is a good night sleep clean. Mm. It's a power cleanse for your brain. Mm. That was the second discovery that she made. The third discovery is that she found what happens when we go into that deep sleep as a new function of deep sleep, which is this brain cleansing, is that we clear out all of the metabolic toxins that have been building up during the day. Because from a biomedical perspective, mm. wakefulness is low level brain damage and sleep is sanitary salvation. So now, and the reason I bring this up with Alzheimer's disease is because two of the toxic proteins that she found that sleep will wash away at night are called beta amyloid and tau protein. 
And these are the two protein culprits that underlie Alzheimer's disease. So now we could realize why in people who were not getting sufficient sleep, people who were sleeping less than seven hours or less than six hours, had a significantly higher risk of dementia in later life. And we didn't know why that is. We just thought, is it an association or is it causal? Hmm. Well, she provided a mechanism that would explain that relationship. So then we started to do the studies. We would deprive people selectively of deep sleep. And then the next day, we could see the immediate buildup of these Alzheimer's proteins in their brain. We could measure it in their bloodstream. We could measure it in their cerebrospinal fluid that bathes the brain. And then with special imaging techniques, we could actually see it in the brain itself. This <laughs> is the next day after one night of selective deep sleep deprivation. Crazy. So now you can realize that if every night I'm shortchanging my sleep, I'm not getting that brain cleanse. And that toxin protein or those toxic proteins that are associated with Alzheimer's disease will build up. And then the next night I do the same thing again. So now it becomes almost like compounding interest on a loan. Right. And night after night, you're not washing away those toxic proteins. They're building up. You're constantly increasing your trajectory risk for this thing called Alzheimer's disease. So we started with an association. We knew a lack of sleep was associated with Alzheimer's risk. Then we found a mechanism plausible to explain that. Yeah. Then we demonstrated it's not just an association. It's not just correlation. It's causal, causal because I can manipulate sleep and I can immediately show those. Now, that sounds remarkably depressing, but there's a silver lining here because unlike many of the other factors that are associated with aging and dementia, you know, things like changes in the physical structure of the brain or the right. blood flood, we can't really do anything about those right now in terms of modern medicine. But sleep is a modifiable factor. So now um, we've, we're developing brain stimulation methods to boost deep sleep because your deep sleep starts to decline across your lifespan. Mm -hmm. Sleep declines across your lifespan, but deep sleep takes by far the greatest hit relative to REM sleep. REM sleep is relatively preserved as we age. Deep sleep goes down like a dart into the ground. And we can even see the decline, the great depression of deep sleep happening in your late 30s. It begins that early. Wow. So here's the thing uh, to connect this to Alzheimer's disease. What if I could start to augment human sleep in people in their 40s? And therefore I could start to improve as a preventative measure. I, I think it's too late stage in Alzheimer's disease, although we're trying it and we're actually seeing some interesting results yeah, now at the yeah. sleep center. But ultimately my goal would be not late stage treatment, but midlife prevention. Yeah. And if I can start to boost back deep sleep using things like electrical brain stimulation, I can act like a choir to a flagging lead vocalist. Wow. And I can help boost those deep sleep brain waves and I can increase the size of them. Maybe I can boost the cleansing system and I can bend the arrow of Alzheimer's disease risk down on itself because I'm boosting their deep sleep. That's, my, that's one of my moonshot yeah. goals right now. That's yeah. one of my hopes. Wow, and how far is, do you think we're away from this? Five years, 10 years? If, if Five years, you know, I, I ended up spinning out the idea into a startup company because we just yeah. knew that we couldn't yeah, yeah. do it simply at a university. And were, you know, it's a very difficult thing because it turns out that everyone's resonant frequency of deep sleep is at a slightly different frequency sweet spot. 
And so, and then as we're sort of singing in time with those brainwaves, we need to have a closed loop system where we're constantly tracking those brainwaves yeah. and constantly sort of changing our dynamic stimulation to keep you moving. It's like a child on a swing. You know, I get, I start pushing the child on the swing with the electrical stimulation and at some point I can stop and it keeps swinging. Yeah. That's the idea. So you stimulate before sleep because I don't want to design a device that you have to wear during sleep yeah. because we take things off. We don't put things on when we go to bed. Yeah. And any device that's out there for sleep that makes yeah. you wear it is going to have low compliance. You know, that's the reason I like actually the Aura Ring because, yeah. you know, most of us can wear rings and we don't think about it. But wristwatches, headbands, they don't really work. You know, you're not going to keep those on. So my goal is to create a device that stimulates you before sleep but then it has a blast radius. It has almost like an echo. It's very much like pushing a child on the swing. You're brushing your teeth. That's when I'm doing the work to get the momentum going. And then you take the headband off, you go into deep sleep, but it, the momentum is there. I've created the momentum. Right. I'm fertilizing the soil and you germinate a more rich, deep set of sleep brain waves as a consequence. So that's what we're trying to do. It's a very difficult, I make it sound simple, but it turns out that technically it's yeah. actually a very difficult problem to solve. Um, I suspect we may ultimately fail. The company is public now, and we're just starting to release a beta version. The company is called Stim Science. If people want to look it up. I still think that we're five years away from creating the right piece of technology. And I will drive that company into the ground. I will use all of our startup money, and I will close it down if we are not getting scientifically reproducible results. Because I don't want to be selling snake oil. There right. is enough snake oil out there in the sleep field that disgusts me in, in truth. You know, my mother, for example, she's in her 80s, you know, and she sees something that's advertised to say, I'm going to give you back your deep sleep, youthful deep sleep. You know, and she spends $300 on a device, uh, 250 pounds on a device, because she's yeah, back yeah, in yeah, England. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, I, I, there's no way I'm going to be sleeping well at night if that's complete junk. Right. So my hope is that it's five years away um, and it may never happen. Um, right. Right. I, I, you know. Anything I, else out there 10 years out that you feel convicted given um, the momentum going on that we may have discovered or solved? You're talking about revitalizing, you know, our ability to go into deep sleep as, as the objective. What else is out there? As a, as a I think probably the most untapped potential is the mattress. Hmm. Because think about the car that you drove us in to Red Ventures in today. Mm -hmm. And you think about that car versus that a car 50 years ago. Radically different. The car that you drove today is packed full of all sorts of sensors. It's technologically rich. It's, it's a different pot of gravy relative to that right. 50 years ago. Right. Think about your mattress today and your mattress 50 years ago. They are much more similar than they are different. Mm. Why is that? Well, you know, you, if you're unlucky enough in life, you spend two hours in your car every day commuting, but you spend eight hours in bed mm. and we're willing to, you know, spend 20, 30, $40,000, you know, on a car, but we get nervous about spending more than let's say a thousand on a mattress. And in part that's because the mattress right now is just a mattress. Mm. Mattresses could be packed full of all sorts of technology. So I love the idea of sleep tracking. The reason I like the Aura Ring too, 
is because when people say, what's the best sleep tracker out there? I usually say it's the one that you wear most frequently, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is not the answer that they're looking for in right, part. Right. But in part, it is the answer that you want. But what I love about the, the Aura Ring is that it's a low friction device. Right. Yes, you have to still charge it, you have to wear it, so it's not no friction. The mattress, from a sleep tracking perspective, could be a no friction device, right. where you, know, you could fall in bed, you know, drunk at night, and it's still gonna measure your sleep. Right. You don't have to charge it, it's just there. But now, it's not just a passive device that records, it's an active device that can augment. We spoke about temperature, why can't I know exactly the thermal signature of sleep? You need to warm up to, to cool down to get to sleep. In other words, I need to warm up your hands and your feet to bring the blood to the surface of the skin so that you radiate out the heat that's right. trapped in your core. So I need to warm the periphery to cool the core to fall asleep. Then I need to keep you cool to stay asleep and then I need to warm you up to wake you up. That's the thermal gradient. I can now, if I could tell what your body's thermal dynamics are, if I could track that, I could program that into a mattress and I could create a bespoke thermal gradient for you, Rick Elias, at this age that is optimal. So the first thing I can do with a, a mattress is not just, you know, set it and forget it in terms of a measuring device, but then I can start to augment your sleep. The next thing is one of the things that people, the reason that people don't sleep well is because of pain, is because of the pressure of the bed and the, the, the support of the bed. Well, we can develop technology that actually manipulates and articulates the bed in terms of the pressure to make it ideal for you. And then I can improve your sleep too. And then there are lots of other ways that I could change your sleep. I could use auditory stimulation rather than electrical stimulation because that turns out also to work for deep sleep stimulation. Mm. And I could do it locally so that it doesn't disturb your bed partner just enough to just you know invade your space and change your sleep. And I can be using a different frequency of auditory stimulation for your partner on the other side of the bed with a different temperature frequency, with a different set of pressure augmentations. Mm. You know, that's coming in the future. Now it turns out that we actually have that. It's part of another company that I'm involved with. Um, and again, I'm not, I'm just, this is full disclosure. The company is called Bright, B-R-Y-T-E. Um, but we're trying to do exactly that. Now, because I'm associated with those companies, you should take everything, and I am the chief scientific officer of Aura, so full disclaimer there too. So anything I say about any of those companies, take with an absolute grain of salt. You know, it it means nothing because, you know, I'm involved with those companies. But I would say that if you were to ask me down the line, where is one of the areas that we have not capitalized in? I think it's mattress technology. I think it's a huge amount of mileage that we can get to augment human sleep. That's amazing. Um, can we talk about the aura yeah, or, or any, 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 any sleep device, uh, that someone may be wearing, listening to this, um, what matters, uh, what numbers to you matter most? So you, you know, you, you turn your thing on in the morning, what, what, where do your eyes go to immediately? Yeah. I would say the first thing to note is that these devices out there are probably, you know, aura ring, wristwatches, yeah, whichever, yeah. they're about, you know, 70% accurate in terms of tracking your total sleep and maybe 50 to 60% accurate in terms of your deep sleep versus your REM sleep relative to what I would do at my sleep center with this spaghetti monster on your head with all of these electrodes. Is it getting better? Well, I can only speak for Aura and and we'll soon release an update as we're we're recording this um, in the summer of um, 2022, but we will release an update 
were, I, I think, and I don't know if other companies release their data, it will be the industry standard and it will take those numbers significantly higher. Awesome. And it will be even more you know, accurate. And at that point, I think it will be industry leading yeah. in terms of its uh, tracking. So let's assume that it's pretty good. It's a not bad proxy. Yeah. I would say Aura right now is probably the least bad sleep tracker out there. <laughs> that's, that's probably the most diplomatic yeah, yeah. way I can yeah, say yeah. it. What do I look for? I look for a number of things. The first thing I look for is my efficiency of sleep. And efficiency tells you about the continuity of sleep. One of the things that we've discovered over the past five years is that it's not all about quantity of sleep. It's also about the quality of sleep. Well, what is quality, Matt? One way that we measure quality is how continuous your sleep is. Is it littered with all of these awakenings and is, is it punctured with this sort of almost like Swiss cheese with all of these holes of awakening? That's usually not good quality of sleep. And that means that your sleep is inefficient, that you'll be spending more of the time that you spend in bed awake, right. which reduces your overall sleep efficiency. Sleep efficiency is the percent of time that you were asleep relative to the percent of time you were in bed. So if you have a 90% sleep efficiency, then 90% of the time that you were in bed was spent asleep, 10% was awake. And that's, a, I would Is look, 90 a good number? Eight, above 85 is good. Below 85. What, what's, what's yours? So my average right is usually around about 90, 92. It's declined as I've got older and that's understandable. That's huh. okay. You know, I used to be up there 95, you know, I look back now this is because you know when i was in my 30s you know you, you didn't have to go to the bathroom you know, three times a <laughs> i didn't have to go to the bathroom but i also had this thing called a sleep laboratory at my advantage and every month i would track my sleep you know i'm much like our friend peter atia yeah, uh, yeah. in terms of tracking and i would be going into my sleep lab every month so i could build my record this was a time when there was no sleep trackers out yeah, there yeah, yeah. but i had a sleep tracker because i had something called a sleep laboratory so i would be oh, that's you know amazing. Uh, please don't tell anyone because i was probably supposed to be doing scientific studies but every every month I would sneak in there and do a night by myself um, so I've, I know my history of my sleep efficiency and I've been able to see the decline yeah. um, but I'm still you know solidly above that that's the first thing I look for is efficiency yeah. then we'll move down a step and we'll ask about the composition of that sleep because another way to measure it is are we getting the right quality of deep non-REM sleep and the right quality of REM sleep mm. and so you know, the deep sleep should be around about 20 to 25% of the night. Mm. And REM sleep should be around about 20% of the night, um, maybe 25% if you're lucky. And then the rest of it will be lighter non-REM sleep. So the next thing I look for is the percent of my deep sleep and the percent of my REM sleep. And also the amount of that, because you know, if I've just slept four hours, then right. it can look like I've had, right. you know, 28% of deep sleep, but really I only had 58 minutes of deep sleep. Whereas if I have eight hours of sleep, I may have less percent. I may have 22 rather than 28%. Right. But in total, I had, you know, got maybe it. an hour and 45 minutes. So you've got to look at both the percent and the, the, the numbers. So if, if deep and REM, if you're lucky, they're 40 to 50% on a seven, eight hours solid street sleep. That would so be that, high for deep sleep. Yeah, yep. be combined, right? I'm saying Correct. between Sorry, them, right? Yes, right. yes. So, so that means that lighter sleep is more than half of our time. Is there any value to lighter sleep? Huge value. And, you know, you can imagine why you would say, well, if that, it's like the idea of junk DNA that we used to think, that we had just this junk DNA that was not really useful. Yeah. 
not how Mother Nature works. She's usually very efficient yeah. and doesn't do junk. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and you'd think, well, the reason that we have all of this light non-REM sleep is because we have to go through light non-REM sleep to get down into deep sleep. And then we have to go back through light non-REM sleep to go up into REM sleep. Yeah. So light non-REM sleep is just the price that we pray, we pay for the privilege of getting down into deep sleep and the privilege that we pay for coming out of deep sleep and going up into REM sleep. You could make that argument. Mm. It's wrong. It turns out that light non-REM sleep has lots of functions as well. One of them is that it's a time when we have lots of this, what's called stage two sleep spindle rich sleep. So mm. I spoke about these deep slow brainwaves, but riding on top of those deep slow brainwaves are these spectacular bursts of electrical activity called sleep spindles. Mm. And they are spectacular if you see them on the, the trace, but they also seem to have several different functions. They've been associated with also learning and memory benefits in terms of plasticity of the brain. They've been associated with replay of memories in the brain that we actually <laughs> rewind the tape and we replay memories. Wow. So light non-REM sleep also has several advantages. There were some associations between that and hormonal health as well. So it is 50% of the night and it has functions. And you could imagine that sleep from an evolutionary standpoint is the most idiotic thing that mother nature could ever have come up with. Because when you're asleep, you're not finding a mate, you're not reproducing, you're not foraging for food, and worse still, you're vulnerable <laughs> to predation. Right, right. So on any one of those grounds, but all of them as a collective, sleep should have been strongly selected against True. in the course of evolution. And it's long been said that if sleep doesn't serve an absolutely vital function, then it's the biggest mistake the evolutionary process ever made. Well, it turns out Mother Nature didn't make a spectacular blunder based on everything that we know. And light non-REM sleep is like this. You, you wouldn't imagine that Mother Nature would just say, well, that's 50% of the time of your night and it's kind of, it's not really doing much so, but I'm still gonna let you have it. She would have excised that and done something else. You know, I, it feels like it, it needs some, some branding help. Right, because it, it, what you're really saying <laughs> is like it's the other when in reality it should be called something that you get a yeah light you know light is sort of like L I T like yeah, it's, it's this like a light beer di- or it's like a, a diet light. yeah like a diet version of deep non sleep and yeah, it yeah. gets this bad you know but the other thing you say about sleep in terms all right of marketing, let's rebrand it let's yeah, rebrand let's it rebrand our goal it. is yeah, to rebrand yeah, yeah, light yeah. into you know yeah, we'll, rich sleep or something yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, you know alacrity of so it's but what's interesting though taking that even further, sleep in general has an image problem in society because we characterize, you know, many people say, why do we neglect our sleep? And there's many different answers, many different reasons. And I've thought a lot about this and mm-hmm. write a lot about this in the book. But one of the reasons is that we stigmatize sleep with this mentality of being lazy, with being slothful. Mm. And that perplexes me because no one would look at an infant during the day sleeping and say, well, what a lazy baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the reason that we, we laugh at that is because we know that sleep at that time of life is non-negotiable. It's fundamentally necessary. Mm-hmm. But somewhere between childhood and adulthood, mm-hmm. not only do we abandon the notion that sleep is essential, but we start to celebrate the lack thereof. We have this badge of honor on our arms of a lack of sleep. It's almost this sleep machismo attitude. Mm-hmm. And that, that surprises me. And I think 
whoever the PR agent for sleep has been, we should fire them <laughs> because they've done a terrible job. You know, sleep needs rebranding. Yeah. We need to have rebranded sleep and start to celebrate sleep where people are proud to tell you how much sleep they get. Whereas now they're proud to tell you how little sleep yeah. that they get. I have a, I have a theory as to why it, it becomes that in maybe a conversation for a different day. But I think because we have this notion that we're going to die and life is limited and there's an end thing, we believe that when we're asleep, we're not alive. Therefore, anytime we sleep, we're wasting the precious time. Yeah. When yeah. reality it should be about the quality of the time we're alive and the importance of sleep and the focus should not be in the efficiency of our time, but the effectiveness of our time, right? So a whole different discussion that you and I have had over. And uh, the quality of, of that time. Yeah, you know, yeah. I would much prefer to spend, you know, 16 hours of every day fully awake, right. fully present, mm. enjoy with positive mood and with energy in my body than spend, you know, 20 hours of that day awake, sleeping only four hours and be this enfeebled diminished version of myself where i'm alive but i'm not really living right and when you're sleeping well you know and that's why i think a lot of people the other reason people say to me look the reason i can't sleep is because i've got so much to do i'm so busy and i i get it but i would also say that the efficiency with which you work when you're getting sufficient sleep is that much higher yeah. it's like in companies you know if you've got an underslept workforce it's like stationary bike at the gym. Everyone looks like they're working hard, but the scenery never changes. Right, 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 right. <laughs> There's no forward movement. And my response would be to you, why would you boil a pot of water on medium heat when you can do it half of the time on high? Yeah, yeah. That is a good night of sleep. That's what it's like. Can we go back to this sewage system discovery? Because something is running in my head as, as, you, uh, as you explained that. You know... F our friend Peter Atia, you know, we talk a lot about heart disease and, and, you know, what I've learned from him is that you can't reverse heart disease. I mean, heart disease in many of us starts in our teens, shows up in our 40s or 50s, but you can't reverse it. You yeah. can slow it down for the rest of life. If you, if you ask the same question about sleep, right, and if your sewage system has not been, you know, handled appropriately and yeah. all that stuff is... Can you catch up on your sleep, so to speak? Can you, can you make up for lost time or can you just help the balance of your life? Great question. And the answer is yes and no. And I'll, I'll, I'll unpack that. I'm not trying to sort of evade the question. Sleep in one way is not like the bank. You can't accumulate a debt and then hope to pay it off at a later point in time. What I mean by that is whatever damage has been done when you've been sleep deprived, you can't get it back you can't reverse it by way of oversleep so you can't short sleep during the week when you're working and then binge on sleep at the weekend mm. and hope to you know placate the damage that you've done in the prior five days of that working week it doesn't work like that mm -hmm. that said however it is never too late to start sleeping better so don't have a fatalistic at attitude towards mm -hmm. it and I'm not just being kind of pom-poms and rah-rah and sort of positive. I can give you good data. There was a study that we were um, associated with, and that this was also a study previously done at UCSF um, over the bridge from me at, in San Francisco. 
And they took a group of people midlife in their sort of 40s, 50s, and they were not getting sufficient sleep because of a sleep disorder called sleep apnea, which is sort of like snoring. Mm -hmm. And then they put those patients on treatment, which is a little mask that pushes airway pressure in there so that you stop snoring and your sleep improves. Now, it turns out that they then tracked those people across the next 10 to 15 years. Half of them were compliant with the treatment. They adhered to the treatment. The other half didn't. So it was an experiment of nature. It was a natural Mm -hmm. experiment. Mm -hmm. Those who actually complied to the treatment, who started sleeping better in their 50s, they staved off the onslaught of cognitive decline and dementia by almost 10 years relative to the group that didn't comply to the treatment and whose sleep remained worse. And what that tells you is that it's a causal manipulation that even in your 50s, if you start sleeping better, you can de-risk some of the consequences here, cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. So yes, they could have been even better in terms of their cognitive outlook and their dementia de-risking if they'd been sleeping well, you know, all of those years up to their 50s. But even at that point, once they started correcting their bad sleep, there was still a longer-term benefit that could be seen. So it's never too late to start sleeping better, but it's also you can't get back the damage that you've caused in the past. My guess is in 10 years, we'll know more of a concrete answer to that. How much I of think. it can you make up? Right? Correct. I mean, like, because yeah. data sets now with all these devices will have Huge data. It's, yeah. Um, you know, my mother died of, um, I do know. of Alzheimer's yeah. 18 months ago. I'm so sorry. In, no, no. It, it, thank you. Um, but what was fascinating learning about the disease, other than it is so cruel when basically someone is dead, but you can't mourn them, is that what happens is they start unlearning things in reverse order. Yes. Right. And, that, and there's the seven stages, stages of dementia. And it's like the things that you learn as a baby in a progression, they kind of go in a regression, which I found fascinating from an from a evolutionary standpoint. And, and it makes me wonder, and I, may, I think this is a big stretch, but it makes me wonder that if the reason why we unlearn how to sleep through life, other than societal, um, but I think it happens, you know, and even in societies that don't have the same mindset that we may have in, in the U.S. or the Western world, where, where with aging we sleep less, is a way for us to almost extinguish ourselves, right? Hmm. So sleep is really important early on. Sleep is less important, but over time we don't learn how to sleep as an as a evolutionary thing, as a way for us to make room for the next generation. Uh, and if that was at all hypothetically possible, this I think it's fascinating uh, that we can reverse kind of the natural evolution of reversing you yeah. know, the same thing. So anyway, I've, I've had yeah, that well, it's, watching my mom. I was know, like, huh. It is interesting that we know that there is a, a huge sleep decline that happens. And we, uh, some people in science have said that tells us that we need less sleep as we get older because older adults sleep less. Well... Let, uh, that's an interesting idea. That's one way you could take it. But the evidence that we know, and we do a lot of work in aging, Alzheimer's disease. I've returned to the question now, and I, we, do, we have a huge program of research dedicated to aging and Alzheimer's at the Sleep Center. And I've made the argument that I don't think that that's true. I think older adults still need just as much sleep as midlife adults. The difference is that they just can't generate the sleep that they need. So the analogy would be to say, well, 
older adults have weaker bones and they need weaker bones because we don't need bones to be as strong when we're old. No, no, we need just the stronger bones. And the, the reason then we, we supplement older adults with calcium, for example, is because we know that we need to strengthen their bones. Yeah, yeah. And we don't just say, well, they have weaker bones because we need weaker, you know, all we yeah. need is weaker bones as yeah. we age. Yeah. It's the same mentality for sleep saying, well, you know, the reason that they sleep less is because they just need less sleep. I don't think that's true. I don't either. And I think that's the reason why we're working so hard, focusing on the restoration of sleep in the aging population, because I think that they need just as much help in terms of sleep supplementation as they do calcium supplementation for their bones. How interesting if it's evolution that's actually killing us. Right? It is really the... Maybe evolution never programmed us to yes, live yeah, that long yeah, and yeah, therefore yeah. never designed sleep to be yeah, you know, yeah. systemically good for yeah. as long as it should be i don't know so interesting can we uh we kind of got to the aura and I, and i think we talked enough about the things that that we track there's a there's a measurement there that i i don't find any correlation because i i think the aura ring is it's not precise at all but if Are you, you do say it, restfulness no no, no well yes <laughs> the readiness readiness yeah, yeah this readiness number seems to me completely out of whack and it's trying to use as outside variables like working out and all this stuff yeah, so yeah can can you tell me that it's okay not to look at it? I'm just kidding. <laughs> what, is, what is readiness all about? I, I think readiness is going to be revised in terms of a measure. I think it was a good first attempt at something. Yeah. I think it has some correlation with some aspects. But I would say that I've heard this a lot, and I know it myself, that it may not necessarily be a proxy objectively of subjectively how we feel every day right. that I can have a readiness score that's low and I seem to crush it in the gym that day and I can have a readiness score that's really high and I have a terrible workout mm. and so I think we're probably going to see a revision of that metric in terms of its super interesting yeah its algorithm um, I think it was not a bad effort out the box yeah but I think it you know you know, maybe A minus must try a little harder, <laughs> and I think we'll get there. I think that's where you're showing your bias. I wouldn't give it any minus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, but I either that know. I want to take your class. <laughs> uh, can we? Uh, I know that you spent a lot of time talking about this, but I think our listeners will will really want to understand, uh, you know, what the scientific view is on the things that that may affect sleep other than sleep itself, right? So let's let's go into. I'm going to throw a bunch of words and you tell me, yeah. you know what, and let's start with caffeine. Uh, what, what, is, what is known and not known about caffeine's impact on sleep? It's funny. It's one of those things where, and I think Peter gets asked this question too, um, you know, what have you changed your mind on over the last five years? Caffeine has actually been one of them. I'm more bullish on, on coffee mm. than I was when I first wrote the book. I was very, I think when I first wrote the book, I was actually came out a little too hard out the gates and mm -hmm. I think people have criticized me for that for being a bit dictatorial and a bit you know myopic in terms of being you know a one or a zero when it comes to sleep and I've learned my lesson I think all, a lot of those criticisms were correct and I've become much softer in my approach and I think more rounded and I, I 
very appreciative of that criticism uh, and I wasn't the best version of myself when I first came out in public because I never knew how to be a public figure mm. you know I, I mm. didn't imagine the book would become a success and I didn't know how to communicate science to the public and that's, I'm only that's just called the journey of life learning yeah <laughs> and getting better but to come back to not to make this about me um, caffeine is interesting caffeine does not have a good relationship with sleep everyone knows this yeah but you may not know some aspects about caffeine. We all know that it keeps us awake. But what you don't realize is firstly the duration of action. Caffeine has a half-life of about five to six hours, which means that it has a quarter life of about 10 to 12 hours. In other words, after you have a cup of coffee, 10 to 12 hours later, a quarter of that caffeine is still in your brain at midnight. So having a cup of you know coffee at at 12 noon or 2 p.m. is like just before you get into bed at midnight, you swig a quarter of a cup of Starbucks and you hope for a good night of sleep. Right. It's probably not going to happen. But that's essentially what having a late afternoon coffee is doing to you. And most people don't realize the, the blast radius duration of action. Hmm. The second thing that people don't know is you could say, well, look, I can have an espresso with dinner and I fall asleep fine and I stay asleep. So I'm you know, yeah. I'm no harm, no foul. Now, some people are fast metabolizers of sleep, and we know the gene for this. Um, it's called the um, the CYP1A2 gene, and it's a it's about clearance of caffeine. Now, but even if that's the case, even if you can fall asleep and stay asleep, caffeine will also block your deep sleep. It will drop your deep sleep by about ten to fifteen percent. In other words. A cup of coffee can age you, you know, to drop that amount of deep sleep, I would have to age you by about 11 years or 12 years. Or you can just do it every night by having a cup of coffee. <laughs> um, so you've got to be very careful. You may fall asleep and stay asleep, but the depth of that sleep is no good. So then the next morning, you know, you wake up and you think, well, I didn't wake up at night. I don't remember having a hard time falling asleep, but boy, I feel like I need two cups of coffee to get going rather than one. It's because you didn't have enough deep sleep. The reason I'm bullish on coffee, though, is because there are health benefits associated with it and very clear health benefits. In fact, many of the same health benefits that sleep provides. Yeah. And people say to me, well, how do you reconcile these two? The answer is not caffeine. It turns out that a cup of coffee contains much more than caffeine. It contains a huge dose of antioxidants. And if you look at the standard American diet or the standard Western diet, most people are desperately deficient in antioxidants because they don't eat, you know, whole foods and fresh foods. And were they, so in other words, the cup of coffee has now been given the Herculean task of carrying all of our antioxidant needs. And that's why a cup of coffee ca carries all of these benefits, not because of the caffeine, but because of the rich antioxidant source. Case in point, decaffeinated coffee has many of the same health benefits absent the caffeine still the antioxidants so i'm bullish on caffeine but caffeine the the short answer is the timing and the dose make the poison it's fine to have a cup or even two cups in the morning but be mindful of taking it on board too late um, and be mindful of how it affects your deep sleep yep very cool um alcohol yeah, alcohol, it's no friend of sleep, um, unfortunately. A lot of people will um, use uh, alcohol to help them fall asleep at night, especially when they're not sleeping well. They use it when over-the-counter medications like melatonin, which doesn't help your sleep. Um, 
those have failed, they start having a couple of nightcaps and they fall asleep, they think, more easily. Unfortunately, that's not true. Alcohol is in a class of drugs that we call the sedatives, and mm. sedation is not sleep. So when you have a couple of drinks at night, you mistake the former for the latter. You think that you're falling asleep. You're not. You're just knocking out your cortex. Mm. And if I were to show you the electrical signature of your sleep when you've had alcohol versus when you haven't, it's very different. It's not the same. It's sedative electrical brainwave activity. It's not sleep brainwave activity. So... Mm. Again, I don't want to be puritanical. Life is to be lived, and I'm just a scientist. I'm not here to tell anyone how to live their life. I would just say that, you know, even a single drink at night, we we can see the yeah. harm on yeah. your sleep. So just keep that in mind. You know, I I dumb all my experiments that are not on that are unscientific. And a glass of red wine early enough doesn't seem to alter at all the inaccurate. You know, more <laughs> results, right? Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I think you're really now. If like, I brought you to my sleep yeah, center, I may tell you a different because right, like, I can measure the fine grain detail. Right. And yeah. then you know, two glasses, kind of maybe in three for sure, right? So you know, at that some point, it's the it's the accumulation, maybe also the size of the person. But I, I find that that is a trade off. I, I don't want to be the healthiest guy in the cemetery. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you know, I go, what am I willing to trade off? And a yeah, lot of these things. And I, I see a lot of people that that get focused on the aura and they become so OCD on it. Yes, right. And it actually, I feel harms like it's the, like harms their mindset it, because then the stress factor, to your point earlier, makes their know, sleep worse. Yeah. So it's actually a disorder that we now call orthosomnia. So you've heard of ortho before in medicine. It means straightening. Orthodontics. Yes. Orthopedics. Yes. It's all about straightening bones, straightening teeth. Orthosomnia is about getting your sleep straight, getting it perfect. Yeah. And one of the dangers of these sleep tracking devices is that you get so obsessed with it that it starts to hurt your sleep. And at that point, even though, you know, I love my aura ring and I, I'm, I, you know, I like the company, I'm working hard for the company. Um, I would say at that point, take it off. Yes. Put it away for a month or so and stop worrying about your sleep. You know, sleep is a little bit like trying to remember someone's name. The harder you try, the further you push it away. And when you stop trying, all of a sudden, yeah, it comes back. All right. How about uh, food and food timing? Um, it's somewhat of a myth, this idea that you need to, you know, stop eating five hours before sleep or three hours before sleep. If you look at the data, it seems to be for the most part that you can eat as close as one hour before bed. and It doesn't seem too much to hurt your sleep with two exceptions, though. The first is that if you're someone who suffers from acid reflux or GERD, mm, mm. then you do need to be mindful of eating a greater distance away from sleep. So keep that in mind. If you're waking up feeling like you've got reflux, you need to eat earlier. The other thing to keep in mind too comes back to temperature. If you're eating a meal that is very high in its thermogenic capacity, and a high protein meal, for example, is a good mm -hmm. example. Mm. Big it piece will, of meat. Yeah, a big piece of meat. That will actually increase your core body temperature. When you increase your core body temperature, it's harder for you to fall asleep and stay asleep. So you do need to be mindful of that. The final thing is composition. If you have high sugar content, it's not good for sleep. We know that that oh, data very so clearly. No dessert or oh, dessert before the dinner. Yeah, dessert before dinner. Yeah. Ice, ice cream in the afternoon. <laughs> a glass of wine at lunch. At lunch. You They're know, very I, Italian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I often not the Mediterranean diet. I, I, I often say the most politically incorrect thing for me to say is go to the pub in the morning. 
and that way the alcohol is out your system by the evening and then you're just fine but i would never say that as a healthcare professional on live microphone um yeah all right uh a, a couple more um exercise in you know my own experience is i sleep better when i work out um is there any scientific proof of that 100 percent. yeah we know that exercise is an ingredient that can bring sleep into your life with greater amount and greater quality so the amount of sleep does increase the efficiency also increases the efficiency of your sleep increases when you're exercising and also the other aspect of that is the amount of your deep sleep will increase so exercise is good there doesn't seem to be too much of a strong correlation in terms of data as to when the best time to exercise is in terms of your sleep mm. some of the data has been asked is it bad to work out too late mm. and the answer for the most part is no if you look at the data you can work out in the evening mm. and you're just fine just just don't work out you know within an hour before bed because the endorphins the dynorphins your heart rate your core body temperature they're all high right. and that prevents sleep but why why would exercise help sleep so i think one of the things that we know is that it creates you know a, a signal to the brain of a greater need for reparation mm. because you've worked the body and one of the things that it creates is a low level of inflammation which is actually a good thing hmm. now high chronic inflammation long-term chronic inflammation a bad thing but exercise actually causes a short-term increase in inflammation and those inflammatory factors will stimulate the sleep system to stimulate greater amounts of deep sleep hmm. to recover and repair you know the the kind of the beautiful damage of exercise and it mm. is good damage we need to work out so that's one of the reasons super interesting and wine is inflammatory too so that may be help um in a different <laughs> way and i'm you're not going to get me on that one that's, that was a good try though i almost took the bait i almost hook line and sinker <laughs> uh, and maybe the last one and for me this is is uh super interesting where i can do everything right exercise eat well no alcohol, you know, kind of be all, all the factors sleep in my bed, all the to go to sleep with all the, the right lack of screens or whatever else or the, the right temperature. But if I have something important the next day, i.e. my nervous system is is active, um, I don't sleep nearly as well. It, it overrides everything else. So it, it does seem like the, the ace of spades is our nervous system, at least in my opinion. Uh, yeah, am I way off? You are bang on. That's the data. We've, we've looked a lot at this in terms of sleep and mental health, especially sleep, sleep and anxiety. And you can't exercise your way out of anxiety and bad sleep. You can't eat your way out with a good diet of bad sleep because of bad mental health. You need to get your mental health in order just as much as you need to get your physical health and your nutritional health in order. And if you get those first two things right, but you don't get the last thing correct, which is your mental health, you are still not going to experience this beautiful thing called a deep restorative sleep at night. You know, in, in, in a world that words matter, I, I, I understand mental health, I, I understand anxiety, um, but I just also think that stress, you know, and, and being good or bad, you know, give us a, in a, a heightened nervous system, right? And really understanding the connection of that 
and then learning how to manage that down, right? I think right. part of getting good sleep maybe in that where meditation may come into place or other things. Meditation that, is that, great. That, 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 that would that be one of my recommendations right, to right. get that down. So yeah. it, it doesn't have to be meditation all the time or whatever, but when you feel like your nervous system is out of sync yep. or heightened, maybe to, then it's really important to figure out a, 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 an antidote to that. You need a tool. You need to either, you know, remove what's causing you the anxiety or you need to find a way to de-escalate that anxiety. Meditation is a great way. Journaling is yeah. a great way. You know, there's a lot of Red different... Red wine. <laughs> you can keep trying. You can keep trying, Rick. I'll tell you. <laughs> now, the nice thing is, even though I was on California time and I flew out here last night to Charlotte, I actually still had a pretty wonderful night of sleep at your house. So I am too sharp to take that bait. Man. You know, if you deprived me down to five hours, I would, I would have said yes to that last one. Um, so, but, you know, to come back to it, that it's what we call anticipatory anxiety. Yes. And that will destroy your sleep. We've done lots of those experiments. And it's bi-directional too, huh. such that bad sleep can create anxiety. We did a study where we sleep-deprived individuals for one night, hmm. and they were all completely normal in terms of being, they didn't have any anxiety disorders. After one night of sleep, almost 50% of those participants were so anxious that they would classify as having a clinical anxiety disorder. After one, After night, of one no night of no sleep. Wow. Yeah. And then what we did was we tracked hundreds of individuals across multiple nights. And what we found is that the quality, the change in your sleep quality from one night to the next to the next predicted your level of anxiety from one day to the next to the next. Even small, subtle changes in the quality of your sleep by just a couple of percent had a marked predictive capacity so I could tell with high statistical accuracy how much anxiety you were going to experience the following day if all I knew was your sleep at night. And so... And it's interesting because it, it is cause and effect, right? Cause the anxiety and effect. can help so your then, sleep. Your sleep can create anxiety. Exactly. So, so now it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a yeah. negative, yeah. you know, reinforcing loop. What is your hack for um, traveling time zones to kind of trick your body into this? And let's say you just came last night yeah. West to east and, you know, and then going to Europe. Let's just take those two. Yeah. So if I'm sort of, you know, traveling back to London or I'm traveling east, yeah. you know, I need to be going to bed earlier. That's very difficult to do. It's much easier traveling west. Mm -hmm. So when you come west to see me and mm -hmm. we hang out, it's easier for you to stay awake longer mm -hmm. than it is for me to fall asleep earlier. Interesting. And that's why West is always easy as a, a easier as a travel mm -hmm. equation for sleep because you can always force yourself to stay awake longer, but it's very difficult to force yourself to go to sleep any earlier. Right. So you need to hack the system. You need to, I cut down, you know, Right now, I started actually, you know, experimenting with caffeine, and I've usually been someone, unfortunately, I have the version of the enzyme that doesn't clear the caffeine very quickly, so mm. I'm very sensitive. Mm. But I'll, I'll choose not to have any caffeine during that day, and then I'll start to actually wear shades in the afternoon to block out the light. Oh, interesting. And I will, so I'm trying to mimic darkness earlier and I'm trying to force the release of my hormone melatonin mm -hmm. to start happening earlier than it would do normally to get me sleepy. Would you be okay if, I, uh, if someone took a sleeping pill when they go to Europe for a night? 
usually I'm not a big advocate of the classic sleeping medications, uh, yeah. and we could name what? all of them. Right. And, Why you know, is that? I won't name. Well, because again, they don't seem to create naturalistic sleep. They also develop dependency, right. and they also have hangover effects the next day, where you feel groggy, you don't feel fully alert. So, I'm. There are some non-classic sleeping medications that I think do have some interesting profiles. And again, yeah, yeah. I am not a medical doctor. I'm not an Got MD, it. so I'm not here to tell. But what I would say is that people that I know who are practicing medical doctors will often suggest alternative to these classic sleeping pills. Yeah. You know, one alternative is something called trazodone. It's an anti-anxiety drug. Yeah. It's usually used in higher doses, but at lower doses, it has a soporific effect. And I would probably, I've seen, I would, I've seen doctors favor prescribing those to help sleep when you're doing travel rather than yeah. classic sleeping pills yeah. themselves. Matt, I can talk to you for hours upon hours, and I, uh, I am super grateful that you uh, came to Charlotte, and uh, we have a couple days of fun stuff ahead, but I am very grateful for your knowledge, for, uh, for your friendship, and for spending this time with us and teaching us so much about something so important. So thank you very, very much. You teach me so much, and just to sit here and talk to you, um, I could do it for hours as well. But um, thank you for being a dear friend and thank you for being the force of good in this world that you are. Um, I feel humbled to be in your presence usually and so um, all the time I shouldn't say. But thank you, Rick. You're a good man. You're a delight. Thank you. As you can tell, I love this conversation with Matt. Here are the three things I learned. Number one is the power of asking a new question. I went on a sleep journey four years ago and today I know much more than I knew then. It makes me wonder, what is next? Is it breathing? Is it food? Is it my relationship with exercise? I am super curious and want to continue to go on this journey of knowledge. Number two is that we truly are what we measure. I am a lot more conscious about what affects my sleep today. And even if we're 70% accurate, that data bank someday may be the key to longevity. And number three, is that I do believe we can do a lot, not only to live longer, but to enjoy our lives much later in life. That said, I don't wanna be the healthiest guy in the cemetery. It is in that moderation and balance that we all have to find the harmony of our choices. Rick shared his three things, but we wanna know your takeaways as well. Find at Rick Elias on social media and let us know your thoughts on this conversation. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.